Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our copies of God's Word in hand now and turn to the New Testament book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 is our text this morning. Now, we were reminded the last couple of weeks of God's sovereignty. We had on the calendar for many months that today would be the start of our Bible conference. Um, but the Lord had different plans. Uh, many of you know that uh, Dr. Michael Waldrop, who was sent out to plant a church from here about 10 years ago, along with his wife and family, have been going through some difficult days with Hope's Health. And in fact, they're awaiting tomorrow uh, biopsy results that will have a big impact on their life for many days to come. So I call you to prayer for the Waldrops today. Uh, they would have loved to have been here today, and they send their sincerest apologies that they weren't able to come. But I thought we'd take a break today from our verse-by-verse study from the book of Romans and talk about prayer and how it relates to the doctrine of justification by faith. Specifically, the title of the message today is Evangelistic Prayer. Now, 1 Timothy along with 2 Timothy and the book of Titus are sometimes referred collectively as the pastoral epistles or letters or simply the pastorals. They are written by the Apostle Paul, of course, to his mentees, two young pastors, Titus and Timothy. And in these three letters, we find a mix of fatherly advice and wisdom and admonition to stay diligent in the task. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul reveals his primary purpose for writing this particular letter to Timothy, who's been tasked with leading the church in a city called Ephesus. 1 Timothy 3, 15 says, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct oneself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So in other words, Paul is instructing Timothy concerning the order and the priority of the church, particularly when we gather together in a corporate setting such as this. So after his traditional greetings and introductions in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul moves right into the body of his letter in chapter 2, verse 1. So let's begin reading there, 1 Timothy 2, 1. First of all, then Paul writes, I urge that entreaties and prayers... Petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and a quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without prayer and dissension. Now right away in verse 1, we see a command. Paul, though he was not physically present with Timothy, exerted his apostolic authority through this letter. And he is deputizing Timothy to correct some improper behaviors that apparently were going on in the church at Ephesus when they gathered together. He points out in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. 
there are obviously some of the leaders of the church who were teaching things that Paul had not instructed them to teach, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Remember, Paul said he was determined to preach Christ crucified, the simple gospel that Jesus died for sinners. But Satan, of course, can't wait to get involved in a church and to dilute the gospel or add to the gospel to make it something that it was never intended to be. And so Paul is sending Timothy primarily to address these false teachers and to clean it up and to purify the church. And then he comes to chapter two and he says, you do this, of course, through prayer. Now, prayer is something that all of us probably would agree we need to do more of. It's probably something that we have a hard time understanding the mechanics of. But I don't know anyone who reads their Bible regularly that would say prayer is not emphasized in the Bible or is unimportant in the Bible. We know that it is. In fact, we're commanded in many places to pray. Paul says pray without ceasing. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray through the Lord's Prayer. And so as we look at verse 1, chapter 2, Paul says, First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. This is the priority of prayer. He's saying, Timothy, if you want the church to be what God wants, us to, wants it to be, you have to make prayer the priority. That's why he says, first of all, not just a first in a list of others, of highest priority is corporate prayer. Speaking of what we do when we get together. Now, there's lots of teaching in the New Testament about individual or private prayer. Jesus taught his disciples when they pray to go into their prayer closet. That is, get alone with the Lord. Don't pray to be heard by others. But he's not in that command prohibiting public prayer. We know that because public prayer was the order of the day in the New Testament. For example, in Acts chapter 2, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he told them to go back to Jerusalem and wait. And what did they do while they were waiting on the Holy Spirit? They prayed publicly and corporately. In the book of Acts, when the apostle Paul and others were concerned about the worldwide mission enterprise. The elders of the church at Antioch gathered for prayer. And the Lord revealed to them by the Holy Spirit that it was to be Paul and it was to be Barnabas who would be sent out from them. So corporate praying is biblical. It should be as natural as breathing. Uh, sometimes though, when we get together in corporate settings, I'm not just talking about in, in the Sunday morning worship service, but when Christians gather in groups, sometimes for committee meetings, sometimes for planning strategies, you'll often hear someone say something like this, let's have a quick word of prayer so we can get down to business. <laughs> Dear ones, when the church gathers, prayer is our business. It's not something that we get past so we can get to the things that are important. It is the most important thing. Paul calls it here of greatest and highest importance. That is why we are here. And our scope of our prayers is great. He says, first of all, Pray for all men. <laughs> That's a task, isn't it? Because last I looked, there's about 7 billion humans on planet Earth at any one given time. Uh, and yet Paul is saying, I think that we're to pray for all kinds of people, all classes of people, whether they look like us or not, whether they live near us or not, that everyone should be prayed for by Christians. Now that's the command to pray. I don't think many of you would push back against the fact that we ought to pray. But secondly, we look at the content of our prayers. Paul tells us the kinds of praying we ought to do. Verse two, he says, for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and a quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior. And so in rapid fire succession, he gives us four words for prayer. 
Of course, this was written in Greek, but English Bibles translate it in this way, mostly. Entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. Sometimes other words are supplemented there. Supplications, some of your versions may say, for entreaties and prayers. And there has been a lot of work by theologians to try to parse down and distill the nuances of difference between these types of prayers. But for the first three especially, there's really not a whole lot of difference. There's just different words for coming to the Lord in humility and asking for things. When we entreat the Lord, um, one theologian says it's when we ask him to withhold things that are negative. And when we make petitions and prayers to the Lord, we're asking for things in our lives that we need, that are positive. The Lord Jesus never rebuked anyone for coming to the Lord with their needs. He just says, make sure you understand that the priority is the fellowship between heaven and us, not the things that God can do for us. He said it this way, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, these things that you need, that you ought to pray for, food, clothing, and shelter will be added unto you. Um, there is a, a nuance of difference though in this one for petitions, often translated intercessions. So it means we ought to pray for the things our church needs and we need in individual lives, but we ought to intercede on behalf of one another and I take it for the lost in our community. And then, of course, all of our praying ought to be superintended by an atmosphere of thankfulness and thanksgiving. If you look at the prayers that the Apostle Paul prayed, and there are many in his New Testament epistles, almost all of them began and end with a note of thankfulness. He's thankful for God's work in their lives. He's thankful for Christ's grace. Um, and he... Uh, often sets the example that our prayers ought to be surrounded by thankfulness. So Paul is saying that when Christians gather together, we are to pray for all kinds of things and for all kinds of people. And he uses one example of the kinds of prayers and the kinds of people we ought to pray for. He says, for kings and those who are in authority. Now that would have sounded very strange in the ears of the folks who were hearing this letter in the city of Ephesus because the Roman Empire dominated that part of the world. And you know that the Roman emperor at that time was a man by the name of Nero. And you likely remember from your study of world civilization, this man was a maniac and a tyrant and a persecutor of Christians. And Paul says, pray for this guy. And they thought, we'll be glad to. We pray the Lord would remove him immediately. <laughs> Probably that's the way some of them were praying. But Paul doesn't say that. Um, he says, pray for him that we may live quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. I hope you pray for this church and all true churches as it relates to our own government in this way. That we can exercise our faith with godliness. That is, to a lost and dying world, they can see that we practice what we preach. That our faith is sincere. That we live lives of practical righteousness. And dignity. I think he has here of quietness, that we're not on the run. I think he speaks here of persecution. Uh, but this is a prayer not just to be left alone, but a prayer that gets to the reason why Christians are often molested and persecuted by their governmental officials. Because Paul is assuming that the reason that Nero and the other Roman officials are mistreating the church is because they are lost. And friends, when it comes right down to it, all persecution of the church here and abroad is because those in authority don't know the Lord Jesus. And so what ought we to pray fundamentally for those who don't know the Lord Jesus, whether they're a king, a governor, a president, or a local 
municipal official. We ought to pray for their salvation because that gets to the root of the problem. All the other things are symptomatic of the real root problem, which is people are lost. And I want to remind you that as the church and as Christians, we ought not expect lost people to behave and think and make decisions like saved people. Now we have the right and the expectation and the accountability that when a person professes Christ publicly as Lord and Savior and joins this body of believers and is baptized into this church, then we do expect them to act like a saved person. And that's why we have this accountability relationship. But those who are outside of that, we understand that lost people are going to behave like lost people. So we ought to pray for their salvation. Verse 4, he tells us why we pray like this, because God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That includes Nero. And that truth both informs us how we pray and it gives us the confidence that when we pray, our prayers will be heard and that they will be effectual. That leads us to our third point, the confidence we have in our prayers. Verse 4, speaking of God who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. We can and should have confidence when we pray. Specifically, when we pray for the lost. Why? Number one, he says, because of God's disposition towards all humanity. He says in verse 4 that God's desire is that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now we have to understand here, put on your theologian's hat for a second. God's desire and his decreed will are not the same thing. We know that. How do we know? Because everything that God decrees will happen, will happen, right? And so if God decreed that all men would be saved, they would be. Are all men saved? No. And we know that uh, that's not because of some deficiency in God. So if we say that God, it's God's will always that everyone be saved, and we know that not all are being saved, then we are left to deduce that God must be less than sovereign or less than omnipotent, which means able to establish and complete his will. So what does it mean then when Paul says in verse 4 that God desires all men to be saved? He's simply being consistent with what we find throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. God takes no joy in the death of the wicked. God takes no joy in the punishment and the wrath of the unbeliever. And that informs us, if God takes no joy in the death and the wrath of the wicked, neither should we. Spurgeon said, no preacher should ever preach on hell without a tear in his eye. God delights in saving sinners. That's what he's saying. So when the, we are firmly convinced that God delights in saving sinners, if you understand that's his nature and that's what he's like, it gives us confidence to pray for the lost because we're not praying for something that's contrary to God's desire and his posture and his disposition towards sinners because God's disposition towards sinners is to forgive. That's why it says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But there's a second reason we have confidence, not only because of God's disposition to forgive when we are praying evangelistically, but because of the doctrine of justification by faith. Here's where it all comes together. These first three chapters of Romans that we've been studying so hard the last two months 
and informs our prayer life. When we get together as Christians, Paul says our priority should be prayer and specifically evangelistic praying, praying that the lost would be saved. Why? Because of the doctrine of justification by faith, which begins with all men are guilty. Isn't that what we've been studying? Chapters one, two, and three. Paul starts out with the pagan Gentile idolaters. He establishes them as worthy of God's wrath. He moves to the ethically and moral people of society that they too are sinners and worthy of God's wrath. He even goes to his own Jewish countrymen and establish they are guilty before God and stand under his judgment. He summarizes all of it and says all men are without excuse. Because of that, we need to pray because we're all guilty and we stand under the righteous wrath of God. Our only outlet and resource is prayer. Secondly, we should pray because God has made a way of reconciliation, but only one way. This is the exclusive nature of the gospel through substitutionary atonement. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. We can have confidence in our prayers because God has made a way of escape. Thirdly, Christ has done everything that is necessary to be done. When we're, not, when we're praying, we're not asking God to reveal to us what we should do to earn his favor or what our neighbors or children should do to earn God's favor. We are confessing that Christ has already accomplished everything that needs to happen through his sinless life, his literal bodily death, and his glorious resurrection. He's done everything that needs to be done. And fourthly, we can pray with confidence because the invitation to, is open to all kinds of people. See, this is this mystery that was hidden in the past that Paul said now has been made clear through his revelation is that Jesus died not only for Jews but for Gentiles as well. And that covers everybody. That covers all 7.5 billion people in the world today. In fact, it covers every person that has ever lived. The invitation is open to all kinds of people. The negative way we saw in Romans chapter 3 is that all men without excuse, Jews and Gentiles, but he also says that the way is open to salvation to all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. And our task is the same as the Apostle Paul's. Paul says, look, this is the task that was given me to go and announce this truth to the Gentile world and to all people that whosoever will may come. And isn't that our fundamental task here? We, we call it the Great Commission. Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why we see teams almost monthly all over the world. That's why we support mission enterprises all over the world financially through this church. That's why we're planting churches in underserved areas. That's why hopefully you're witnessing to your neighbors on your own block because all men are lost. Jesus has made a way through his death, burial, and resurrection and the invitation is open to all and we've been commanded to go and tell. But I think the primary reason we need to pray is because it's not up to us to save anybody, is it? We can't. Now we can be made available to the Lord. We can be obedient to the Lord in sharing the gospel. We can't save anybody. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The scripture says that uh, Paul, speaking of his own ministry, as great as it was, he understood he couldn't save anybody. He says, I, I, I planted, Apollos watered, but what? God gives the increase. God's got to make that thing grow. And so we depend on the Lord and we express that dependence on the Lord through humble prayer. 
but not just any kind of praying. Our God is holy. And so let's look at verse 8 to see the condition of our prayers. He says, therefore, that is as a result of everything I've said about prayer up until this point, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and decision. There's an interesting word here, translated men. Oftentimes in English literature and even in the Bible, where a word is translated men or man, it's speaking of all humanity, regardless of gender. That is not the case here. This is the very specific Greek word for males. He says, it's my will that males, men, should lead out in praying in the church. Now, I'm thankful, aren't you, for godly women who pray. I expect many of us came to know the Lord through the prayers of godly mothers and grandmothers. And yet God has designed every institution that he's designed, human government, marriage, and the church to be led by certain people who carry on certain roles. And in the church, he says that is to be the men. Men are to lead in public prayers. Now, it doesn't mean that women can't pray. It means that men ought to lead out. I think in the home, men, you need to be the spiritual leader, not just the physical and financial provider for your family. Certainly that is true. But you also need the spiritual leader, leading in family worship and leading in times of prayer for your family, teaching them to love the Lord. And he says, men, you need to do this lifting up holy hands. Now, this is one of many postures we find in the Bible for prayer. So therefore, I don't think he's prescribing this as the only way to pray. We find people laid prostrate before the Lord when they pray. We, we find people, as Jesus said, going to their prayer closet to pray. But the way in the ancient world, in the time of the Apostle Paul, uh, that men often prayed was standing. Now, even then, it's the matter of the heart. Jesus told the story of that Pharisee who went to pray, he stood, which was the custom, and lifted up his hands, not to point to heaven, but to point to who? Himself, because his heart wasn't right. Look at me, Lord. I'm glad I'm not like these other people. So the emphasis is not on the mechanics of prayer or even the posture of prayer, but the condition of the heart. That's why he adds this adjective, lifting up what kind of hands? Holy hands. Now, now holy means clean. When we come to worship, we ought to be thoughtful and prayerful about it, not just to roll out of bed and come in without any preparation of our heart. We need to confess our sins and understand that we're coming into the presence of a holy God. You need to make sure that things are right between you and God. In fact, he says you ought to make sure things are right between you and God first, and you ought to make sure that things are right between you and other people. Jesus says, if you bring your gift to the altar, you remember that your brother has all against you, you ought to go to him and make it right, and then come back and make your offering. And so those are the two fundamental relationships in our lives, aren't they? Uh, there's relationships between ourselves and heaven. We need to make sure our sins are confessed and our hands and hearts are clean before the Lord before we pray and before we worship. And then sometimes through that prayer of confession, we're reminded that we've wronged another person. And we need to make things, things are right between us and other people, that there's no wrath, no anger, no bitterness, no dissension. Then that is the condition in, in which our prayers are effectual. And the reason we've been studying through the book of Romans, and I said this in Sermon 1 in the introduction, is because historically God has been pleased to bring about revival and reformation through the preaching of the book of Romans. 
and specifically the doctrine of justification by faith. Uh, it was made mention earlier that today is the 504th anniversary of the Reformation, which began when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses or arguments against the Catholic Church on the church house door at Wittenberg, and God sent a great revival where many millions came to faith, and we're still reaping the benefits of, of that today. But it was not just Luther's brilliant strategy and his intellect that God used to bring about revival. It was the prayers of Luther and many others. And as you study the history of revival in our own country, that is the case. Yes, it came through the preaching of the full um, counsel of God, specifically as it relates to sin, righteousness, and judgment. But it was through the prayers of God's people that he was pleased to send it. The prayers of people who were broken and contrite over their own sin and confessed that sin before the Lord. And the Lord was pleased in his sovereignty to send revival. We want to see it again, don't we? And if we want to see revival, we want to see our children and grandchildren saved. If we want to see them grow up in a country and in a culture, in a world marked by righteousness rather than wickedness, we want them to be able to live quiet lives of dignity and godliness unmolested by their own government. We need to pray. Because friends, it's heading in the opposite direction. Many of you have expressed to me fear for your children and grandchildren, the world that they are inheriting. And I feel the same for my own four children. We need to pray for them and, and for revival and awakening, which is marked by many people coming to saving faith, repenting of sins and trusting as, as Lord and Savior. And so today, for the remainder of our time, we're, we're going to attempt to practice what we have been preaching. If, if we say we want revival, and we believe sincerely that it's not dependent upon us, but upon the Lord, we need to beseech him in prayer. So this morning, we're going to have times of four guided prayers. And the first one is, is prayer for mercy. I've told you before, when I pray for our nation, often the first words across my lips are mercy. Mercy means God withholding from us what we deserve. Grace is getting something good. We have not earned it and we don't deserve. Mercy is God's withholding, keeping back his judgment. We know we do deserve that. So I'm going to ask Brother Dan Trantham to come now and voice this prayer on our behalf. And as he prays in your heart and in your mind, lift up a prayer for mercy to God on behalf of our church, our city, and our nation. Brother Dan. Good morning. I'll pause uh, a brief second between some subtopics and give you some ideas of mercy of uh, people or, or groups of people that we should pray for. But as he, uh, as Pastor said, I'd like for you to pray, not just listen to me as well. So let's start by going to the Lord regarding individual mercy. Father, there are a great many prayers recorded in the Bible. One is King David coming before you after his mistake with Bathsheba. Another later in Psalms is the Psalm of Moses. They are transparent, they're remorseful, deeply personal, and in awe of your majesty. So Father, we come to you without any veil, but rather humbly bow before you seeking your mercy. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Your holiness requires perfection, and in and of ourselves, we cannot do it. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Your wrath is what we deserve. Stay your hand, dear Father, from the punishment we are due. 
Even for those of us who know you through justification by Christ, we still fall short daily. We can't help ourselves. We're frail and we're fickle. We need you. Day by day, we need you. Instead of justice, we desire your will, your discernment, and the indwelling of your spirit so we might not dishonor you. In Christ's name, I pray that. Next, let's talk about, or let's pray about corporate mercy. Father, here we are at, at First Baptist Keller. We hope we're doing it right. We hope you're honored as truth is spoken from the pulpit. We hope the standards in which we hold ourselves are pleasing to you. We hope there's no gossip, no pride, no secret plans, no false truths coming from this body of believers. But we're fallen creatures, which means we can trip over ourselves at any given time. So, Father, help us take ourselves out of the story. One of the greatest mercies you can provide is to reveal our sins quickly so that we may not dwell in them. Show your mercy by stripping away our personal ambitions. Show your mercy by showing us where we can do it better and forgive us of our trespasses as we turn our eyes wholly on Jesus. Next, let's pray about the mercy of the global church. Father, we have two requests of the mercy of the church. First, we desire to be the bride that Christ deserves. But look at the Church, writ large, we can't agree on doctrine, we can't agree on music, and Lord, we can't even agree on the inerrancy of your word. So woe to those who know the truth yet mishandle it. Christ Jesus, you are known for your compassion, so we beg that you would come back soon, or by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would lead us in revival to encourage a return to truth. And secondly, those in the global church who are at this minute living in persecution for speaking the name above all names. We know you are rich in mercy, Father, deliver them. You are their refuge and their strong tower. Father, we ask that you would reward them for the battle that they are enduring. Next, let's pray about the mercy of our leaders. Father, we all have our opinions about government and those who have been placed in leadership positions. Many, many times we see where this world is going and we want to blame them. We want to have a righteous indignation about how bad they are versus how good we are, but in reality, they need you like we need you. We won't stand here and justify any ungodly decision made in leadership positions or even local leadership because we will look in the mirror that is God's word and have compassion on them and lift them up in prayer. But maybe some folks, Father, in authority are abusing their position to disrupt the tranquility for their own profit. If that's the case, we pray the Holy Spirit would convict to draw them to you, or if they know you, back to you, so that they would know their solemn duty to serving people in a way that honors you. Uh, next is the mercy for this world. Father, we know that there, there are the elect. We know that not all souls will live in eternity with you, but we we don't know who they are. We are only told to share the good news. There be maybe 99 of us in here, but there's one out there. We should be looking for them. Or as Paul said, we should have great sorrow and unceasing grief for the lost. So Father, as you stayed your judgment on Sodom, as you removed your people from the coming destruction, you're staying your wrath on this world until Christ returns to collect us. We know judgment is coming. We know the mountains will melt like wax 
before our returning king. But Father, show your mercy on this world while we do our work as ambassadors. Give us the time allotted you desire and put us to work. Father, you are merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you for Christ Jesus, and it's his precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Dan. Next, we want to pray for a deepened compassion and burden for the lost. Jesus pointed out over a field and told his uh, disciples that the fields are, are white unto harvest. And so we need to be merciful. We had about 1,500 visitors on our campus Wednesday night, many of whom I suspect don't know the Lord, many of them our neighbors and our friends. And so uh, let's ask the Lord to give us a burden for their souls. The Apostle Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, his people, is that they would be saved. So I'm going to ask Brother G.H. Cain to come now and pray that the Lord would burden our heart with compassion for lost souls. We're... Uh... We're about to leave our worship service and uh, into a time of, of Bible study. Uh, but in addition to those Bible studies that we have in, in the next hour, there are a lot of Bible studies throughout the throughout the week. Uh, I'm involved in one that uh, it, uh, with men that meet on Friday morning at six. Uh, that's an open invitation for anyone else to come uh, that wants to. But here for the last last month or so, we were uh, we were studying the last four chapters of Revelation in uh, chapters 19 through 22. And uh, the first 10 verses of chapter 19 is the good stuff. Uh, that, that talks about the, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That, that's the good news for, for believers. But the balance of, uh, of 19 and 20 talks about uh, the horrific news for those who are not saved. It talks about, <clears throat> about what their destiny will, will be. They're, uh, they're very difficult passages to, to read. So I have, I have a question for us here, here this morning, a question for me, and I think it's for all of us. Uh, how burdened are we for people who... Uh, who don't know the Christ, who don't know our Lord. Um, I think when we, when we truly understand and truly have a vision and an understanding of what their destiny holds for them, that can't help but move us with compassion and a burden uh, to share the gospel with them. Even... Even the people that uh, just kind of rub you the wrong way. Uh, it, when we have a vision of, of what their eternal destiny will be, separated from the Holy God, that can't help but move us in compassion and a burden to share. So I, I'd like for us to, uh, to pray and uh, ask the Lord to to soften our hearts so that he might use us uh, to share his, his good news. So, so let us pray. Father, you indeed are gracious and merciful. Lord, we, we know that, uh, 
that you have provided a way of salvation. Lord, we, we know that through the precious gift of your Son, Lord, you have made a way for us to come back into fellowship with you. Father, we, we are your, your greatest creation. Uh, we're made in your image. And Father, that is, a, that is a, a truth that is very hard to grasp at times. Lord, we, we also know that, uh, that because of our sin that we have broken that relationship with you. But thank you, Father, that you have made a way for us to, uh, to be restored, to be redeemed. Uh, Christ said, as, as Pastor Keith said here this morning in, in, in John chapter 14, he made it very clear that I am the, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Lord, that, that is a, a truth that I pray that you, would, uh, that you would make even clearer in our hearts. And Father, I pray that, uh, that the people around us that, that don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would give us a compassion and a burden uh, for their souls. Lord, help us to un understand uh, where their destiny is without you. And, and when you do, Lord, I pray that you would move us, not to just get emotional and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and religious with them, but Father, I pray that you would move us to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus, knowing that that is not only our only hope, but that is their only hope. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, that you would quicken our hearts and, uh, and cause us to, uh, to actively look out and watch for people that, that are around us, Father, that we would have the opportunity to, to share your good news with so that they, too, might be part of your kingdom uh, in eternity. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, G.H. And now we want to pray, as Jesus instructed to, for laborers. Uh, Jesus says, the fields are wide in the harvest. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into the field. Now understand, when you're praying for laborers, you're likely the answer to your own prayer. And so let's uh, now listen and pray with Dan Hale as he comes to ask the Lord for laborers. As Pastor Keith said in that verse, it says, uh, pray earnestly, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth, send forth laborers. And so think about what that means to pray earnestly. Uh, for that. Uh, please join me in prayer. Dear God, I agree with my uh, brothers who have lifted up these prayers for mercy, compassion, and a deep burden for the lost. As Jesus weeped over the city of Jerusalem, we carry that same burden for our own city. And we know from your word that you have chosen to spread the good news of salvation through us, your disciples and followers. As you spoke to your disciples in Matthew and instructed them to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forward laborers, we lift up that same prayer to you this morning. In Romans it says, how shall they hear without a preacher? Your sovereignty only looks for willing vessels to proclaim your name. We pray this morning, Lord of the harvest, send us, use us, Speak through us to reach the lost in our neighborhoods, in our schools, while at work, and during normal routines. 
Please help us to be willing to live the gospel and speak the gospel and trust God for the fruit. I pray for our youth and our young adults that you would call them to labor in your mission field, whether abroad or at home. Please send forth from our own. Please bless our partnerships around our country, Lord, and even the one meeting here in the Keller Activity Center, that they would establish and grow disciple-making disciples. Lord, your compassion reaches beyond the borders of our lives. Please send more laborers to St. George, Utah, and other parts of the Northwest and the Northeast that have few churches to be uh, salt and light. We pray for our partnerships in Baker City and Portland, that their churches would grow into church-planting churches. The laborers are few, but the mission field is great. Lord, and for our partnerships overseas in Mali, India, Alaska, and uh, the team we're going to send with the transom, transoms to, and part of our partnership with Onboard, Lord, to Mombasa, Kenya, as they train leaders there, Lord, that they would return to their own communities and uh, bring forth the good news of the gospel. I pray for the unity of our Southern Baptist churches. Please return us to the focus and mission of sending pastors and missionaries to home and abroad. The harvest is ripe. Please use us in your harvest. Jesus said that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. We lift you up this morning as a united church body. May we lift you up in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our city, and beyond our borders. May we be part of your plan to draw all men unto yourselves. And please add like-minded disciples to our numbers. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Dan. And finally, for a couple years now, we've been asking you and your Sunday school departments to pray specifically for those in your sphere of influence, whether family members, friends, or acquaintances, by name, that as far as you know, don't know the Lord as Savior. And so I want you to go to the Lord now in prayer as Russ Adams comes to voice this prayer for specific personal request um, for lost souls that would become to saving faith. So Russ, come lead that prayer, please. Well, we have asked God for and praised him for his mercy. And we have asked him to give us a greater awareness and compassion for the lost around us. And we've asked him to send laborers into that uh, harvest of souls ready to be brought in. And so now, folks, uh, those prayers are about to get very, very personal. If you watched last night's World Series game, you probably saw that moment in between the innings one time where they had an emphasis on standing up against cancer. Uh, they had given everyone in the stadium, including players, a, a card that uh, at the top of it said, I'm standing up for, and then there was a place for a name to be written. And when that moment of emphasis came, it was really something. Everyone was holding up those cards. And as the cameras panned across the, uh, the dugouts and up into the stands, here was all those names. They were you know, names special to each one of those people. It was, it was really a touching thing. And when I saw it, I thought, okay, there's, you know, there, there's my emphasis right there. Uh, how much more should we have that same heart for those in our lives that are lost 
you know. And so that's what I'm, I'm uh, going to ask us to do right now. Each one of us uh, has has lost people in our lives that, uh, and that circle is unique to us. Maybe family members, maybe friends or coworkers, or just you know people we know and who know us in all kinds of different situations. So we're going to pray for them right now by name. Just as Pastor said, by name. So have some of those folks in your mind. You know, by name, we're going to silently lift them up to the Father in prayer. Now maybe you've been praying for some of these people already for decades. I know I have one. Maybe these are just people that, that you've met in some new relationship, you know, business or professional or, you know, as a neighbor or something. Uh, pray for them as well. Every opportunity to pray for someone lost in our circle should be, uh, you know, should be uh, taken. So I'm going to ask now that we silently uh, ask God to bring salvation to these by name. So after a few moments, uh, I'll close us in prayer together. But let's pray for those souls that we know personally that don't know Jesus. Let's pray. this has been a time of silent prayer but you have heard each one of these names clearly and you know each circumstance so Father we ask in accordance with your sovereignty that you would bring each one of these to saving faith in your son Father it's already been mentioned that uh, as, as we ask you to send laborers out into the uh, harvest, that uh, we may very well be uh, part of the answer to that prayer. And in these circumstances especially, I'm almost certain we're going to be part of the answer to that prayer. If that is the case, Father, we ask for boldness. You're the one who does the saving. You're the one who does the convicting. But it pleases you to involve us in your work. And in these circumstances, Father, you will guide us into situations in which we can say a word. We can put an arm around someone. We can share the good news of the gospel. Give us boldness to do that. Father, we ask that you would glorify yourself in everything. We offer this prayer in the wonderful name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.